Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Emma Aston for a conversation about centaurs in Greek mythology. Dr. Aston is Associate Professor in the Department of Classics at University of Reading, based in the UK. Previously, she worked primarily within the area of ancient religion. She wrote a book that I'm about to mention on animal hybrid deities, and currently she's working on a monograph on the history and culture of Thessaly from the Archaic to the Hellenistic periods. She is author, so in terms of the previous monograph, she is author of the book Mixanthropoi, Animal-Human Hybrid Deities in Greek Religion, which was published as a supplement to the Kernos Journal. And she joins us today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be with you, albeit remotely. I'm looking forward to the conversation today, Emma. What are centaurs in Greek mythology? Okay, so I guess the easiest way of answering that question is to talk about their physical composition and anatomy. They are one of the two um, common frequent forms of human-horse hybrid in ancient mythology, and the central composition is to have a human torso, head and arms, attached to uh, the body, uh, hindquarters and legs of a horse. So where the neck of the horse would come out of the body, instead we have a human torso rising up. Uh, the other um, horse hybrid, of course, is the satyr, which is differently configured. Um, satyrs work on, walk on two legs, centaurs walk, walk on four, but they're both combinations of horse and human. Okay. Um, are they believed in mythology to have first shown up in Greek mythology or in your research? Did you come across anything, uh, any, any writings of, of them in a mythological context uh, prior to uh, Greek uh, writings? This is a really interesting question. In a way to answer it, we have to look at material and visual culture um, as much as or more than writing. Um, there are in the in the art of the ancient Middle East, of course, there are many hybrid forms of various sorts. In fact, there you find a richer selection of hybrid beings than you do in Greek art, I should think. And among them, uh, we do find creatures that look a bit like our Greek centaurs. They're not exactly the same, however, and it raises the big question of transmission, whether the Greeks really were getting these forms, these beings, and these ideas from the Middle East. Uh, and if they were influenced by the visual imagery, did they also import stories and a sense of the central character? I, I don't think we can really answer those questions, but I think it's fair to say that we can see um, the, the Greek centaur is serving the preoccupations and the themes of Greek mythology and so regard them as substantially homegrown. Um, in terms of the textual record, there was an attempt in 1929, I think it was, by the great um, French scholar Georges Dumézil to argue that the centaur comes from, that the word centaur comes from a Sanskrit word and therefore to suggest a really early Indo-European connection in both language and mythology 
um, uh, between Greek and Sanskrit culture, but I think that's been substantially discredited now, interesting, interesting as, as it is. So I think now most scholars focus on what centaurs actually mean um, in Greek communities at different time periods. Well, let's talk more about that then, because it's relevant. Um, what, what's known about the etymology about the word centaur? Well, actually, it, it remains, as far as I can tell, almost entirely mysterious. Um, uh, as I say, the Sanskrit derivation, I think, is one that people wouldn't believe um, nowadays. Interestingly, the ancients themselves tried to answer the very question you just posed, Andrew. So if you look, for example, at the late rationalizing author Polyphotus, who treats Greek mythology to a rationalizing explanation, um, he comes up with a story about how the word kentauros derives from the kent root, which is to do with piercing or stabbing, and tauros, which means a bull, and he constructs a story of a, a tribe in northern Greece, Harry and, and attacking the javelins, wild bulls that have been getting in the way. Um, this is, um, it's interesting, it's always interesting to see how ancient authors explain words, but it's it's not a, a true etymology as we would um, define it. And as far as I can tell, uh, we're still actually at, at a loss as to how to uh, trace the origins of this word. Okay. And earlier I asked about uh, writings that may have existed prior to writings in, in Greek, and I find uh, I sometimes get caught on that on that question because I naturally go to write writings, but it's always important to remember that with certain uh, topics, there's imagery also that exists, especially when you're talking about lore and mythology and such. So when we're talking about centaurs in uh, Greek mythology, uh, in your research, what showed up first? The, the the writings on the, the the centaur or imagery and can you can and can you take a moment and describe both kind of a, an early account that uh, that that you can think of mm, certainly answering the question of relative chronology brings you up against the dating of homer um, which i know that some of your other podcast contributors have also had cause to mention but i think it's fair to say that in terms of the material we actually have surviving image comes first. So the first representation we have of a centaur that, that, that survives and is extant in the archaeological record is the famous, justly famous object called the left candy centaur. And I'm really glad you've given me the opportunity to talk about that because it's a fabulous object. It's a, a, a terracotta, a painted terracotta centaur from the really important early Greek site of left candy on the island of Eubea, or as, to give it its modern pronunciation, Evia. And um, left candy generally made us reconsider lots of aspects of, um, of what we used to call Dark Age Greece, because it's a site with a really rich and important archaeological record, and it doesn't come across as a place of, of decline and, and, and poverty and unimportance. And from um, the, the graves excavated at Left Candy um, were taken two halves of this centaur. The, the head was found in one tomb and the body was found in another one, which is immediately intriguing. And this, this Left Candy centaur dates to about, as far as we can tell, 900 BCE. And that's at least a century before the next earliest representation. So it's um, right out in front of, in terms of earliness. Now, um, how does that how does that compare with the first the first textual reference? Well, the first textual reference is in Homer's Iliad, 
and probably uh, it's it's rare to find a conventional dating of the Iliad that goes further back than the the 8th century the 700s BCE so we can say immediately on the face of it the textual tradition is later than the visual one but this is rather complicated by the fact that Homer would have been drawing on pre-existing mythology and even earlier epics and on the oral tradition so I think it's it's fair to say that the stories of centaurs would have been in circulation for quite a time um, before these mentions in the Iliad um, before the Iliad reaches the form that we have it. The uh, citation you used for the imagery, what date did you say that it's circa? About 900, okay. so late take 10th century, possibly a little bit earlier, even 925 or thereabouts. As you can imagine, the dating of the, this early material is often contested, but that's the best, um, the best uh, reasoning that people have come up with yet. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. Um, is there another uh, two or three maybe uh, writers uh, in the ancient period in Greece that you want to mention, perhaps in the classical period that you want to mention that, that wrote about uh, centaurs? Certainly. I mean, actually, um, I'll pick two. And one of them is, is relatively early, early classical, and that's the poet Pindar. And talking about Pindar will allow us to reflect on a particular centaur, Chiron, who's so different from the rest of the centaurs that he's worth talking about um, talking about separately. And then the other author I'd like to talk about is completely different. He's from the second century AD, and he's somebody called Phlegon of Tralles. You, you won't have heard of him, no one has. He's very sort of eccentric and off-centre, off and that's why I want to give him a bit of publicity. Um, but to begin with, with Pindar, so Pindar wrote, among other things, poems celebrating victories at the Great Crown Games, for example, the Olympic Games and the Pythian Games. He wrote um, poems to honour and laud the victors in these contests. Um, and he draws on early mythology to find sort of analogies and metaphors for the poetic themes he's putting across. And one of the one of the characters who seems to be important in his poetry is Chiron, who is a centaur distinguished from the others for his his justice and moderation. Pindar calls him a fair theos, a divine animal, a divine wild beast. And this combination of animality and divinity is what really makes him stand out. On the one hand, he has the kind of bestial characteristics of the centaur because he's part animal, he is part horse as they are. But on the other hand, he's lifted above the kind of common herd of centaurs, so to speak, by this, this element of divinity and godlikeness, godliness. And he's, his character is taken to... A, a, an extreme of perfection. He is the perfect tutor, educator, wise man, healer. He's an inventor of medicine. He passes the skill of medicine, the knowledge of medicine, on to the great healing god Asclepios. Um, and um, how, you know, any creature or character more different from what we think centaurs are going to be like cannot be imagined. Mostly when we imagine centaurs, I think we think of rough, violent, damaging, dangerous, frightening creatures, because the, the myth that is perhaps most famous from centaur lore from the ancient world is the, the battle between the centaurs and the lapids. So the, the, the lapids are a tribe in northern Greece who are celebrating a wedding of one of their number, their leader, in fact, Perithous, He's just sitting down to his wedding feast when uh, the centaurs who live in the area crash the party, 
smash up a load of stuff and gut the bride and generally make themselves objectionable. So that's what we might expect centaurs to, to behave like, because after all, they are part animal. But Charon is, is really designed to be the absolute diametric opposite of that. And Pindar exploits him as a sort of a poetic, almost a philosophical emblem of everything that is, is good. So that's, that's to, to start you off by putting on a pedestal the sort of good centaur figure that I think in a way interestingly feeds into popular culture because of course wise centaurs turn up in, for example, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books and um, even Harry Potter centaurs are, I think, good, although a bit scary. Um, and I think maybe the figure of Charon has really fed into that, that discourse of the idealised centaur. Now, at the other end of the literary spectrum, um, is my second example. Phlegon of Tralles was apparently a man in the administrative staff of the Emperor Hadrian, which makes him interesting to start with. He's in the entourage of a, a famous emperor. And he wrote a treatise called, called On Marvelous Things, <laughs> Perithaumaton in, in, in Greek. And if you want sort of ancient supermarket tabloid, this is it. So I'm taking you from the sublime to the ridiculous, really. If you read Phlegon's work, it's just a sort of hodgepodge of stories about weird happenings. So, for example, we have people living a very, very long time. We have babies born with animal heads. We have men giving birth, all sorts of curious things. Um, and among among his thaumata, his, his marvels that he recounts, is a centaur that he claims to have seen. And that's what I think is interesting about this one. He claims to have seen it in a, in a preserved condition. I can't remember offhand whether it's stuffed or pickled, but it apparently is kept in the Emperor Hadrian's store chamber. How did the emperor get hold of a centaur? Well, it was it was given to him. Rulers through the ages get given odd presents, right? I'm sure I'm sure um, modern royal families are given strange gifts by fellow potentates and so on. Um, and you can imagine the the emperor Hadrian's um, chagrin and embarrassment on being given a centaur. Oh, how nice he would have said, just what I just what I wanted. Um, unfortunately, it didn't survive. It was captured. Phlegon tells us it was captured alive in Arabia, its native land. It was transported back to Rome via Egypt, and in Egypt it died, unfortunately, and had to be had to be preserved and sent on in that state. And the reason I, I single this out is is because I think this is the second way of that the ancients had of trying to imagine the centaurs as actually living and existing in reality. One way is to imagine them being in the distant past, so they they were real once, but we don't need them now because. They are long gone, they belong to the age of heroes, the distant past. The other way of imagining them is to imagine them as spatially distant, as living in foreign and exotic lands. So that's where Phlegon comes in with his Arabian centaur. What he actually saw is fascinating to imagine. What did Hadrian actually have in his store chamber? Was it some sort of fraudulent confection, maybe a pony with a ape torso sort of stitched onto it? And actually, there's a whole interesting subtopic about preserved fake hybrids, which the ancients were just as interested in as we are now. I mean, in the modern world, there are a number of fake mermaids that you can see in museums around the world. And the ancients had these kind of weird relics as well. Um, so, so the kind of exotic homeland is an interesting feature of Phlegon centaur. And centaurs generally could be seen as residing in distant lands. That's why we don't see them there far away. And how he's described is interesting. He has a dark and savage countenance. So again, trying to find a way of capturing the wildness of this being. It's 
fascinating. But just, just finally, to imagine that for someone like Phlegon, centaurs are one possibility in what you might call the repertoire of the strange, because this book is full of marvels and hybrids are just one kind. Anyway, so, so from the lofty Chiron to this rather tragic stuffed thing in Hadrian's store chamber, those are two kind of polar extremes that I thought would illustrate some of the ways in which centaurs appear in our literature. The, the latter writer, um, how, how did you come across his work? Well, I mean, I, I first bumped into him when I was, so to speak, when I was writing, well, my PhD thesis, which became the book you mentioned. And um, I, I, there's a, a really good sort of quite recent translation and commentary. <laughs> and um, I liked him immediately because I found him an antidote to the more mainstream texts that I think we think of first. So if you're thinking of an ancient author who really kind of theorizes scientifically about hybridism and centaurs and such creatures. It's Aristotle who comes to mind. So a mainstream author that everyone's heard of who's trying to treat the occurrence of hybrids uh, from a scientific perspective. And of course, that's very important. But I don't really think that captures how the man or woman in the street would have seen these things in antiquity. I think Phlegon's work, which is full of wonder and curiosity and a kind of prurient interest, is much closer to how the kind of normal reactions um, would have been. So I like texts which get us out of the sort of high elite intellectual register of our Aristotles and our Plato's. When you read when you read his work, do you think that he knew he was creating tradition, perhaps at that point in time, or do you or do you read it and believe that he really believed what he was writing? Oh, that's such a good question. I I don't think one can really know, but the tone of such works, I should say that there's a whole category of ancient texts that we would call paradoxography, the writing about the strange and the impossible. And uh, and Phlegon is an example of that. And the tone is, is of sort of persuading the reader of the truthfulness of what you're saying. So I think that Phlegon knows that the sort of thing he's talking about, centaurs included, might be disbelieved. So he knows that the reaction of the reader might be, no, that's impossible, surely not. And I think the fact that he chooses to say that his Arabian centaur was still there in, in Hadrian's storeroom and could be seen is a part of that rhetorical process of persuading the reader of the truthfulness well if you don't believe me go and have a look of course not everybody could actually get access to this space so it's a slightly a slightly false gambit whether he actually believed it well we can't know personally i think yes i mean i think the the, the work is not sophisticated enough to be insincere really it sort of feels like the work of a, a credulous person but that's just my personal opinion so you cited a tradition where a centaur is preserved. You cited, you mentioned uh, in another tradition, there's uh, a representation of a divin divinity almost, uh, somewhat sim symbolic. So in tradition, and it might vary, but in tradition, are centaurs mortal or are they immortal? <laughs> as far as I know, the badly behaved ones are mortal in the normal way. So the ones that mess up Perithous's wedding I don't think there's any indication that they belong among divinities. It's also worth saying that they, their parentage wouldn't suggest immortality either because they are born 
um, of a really strange... I mean, this takes us into the murky territory of how you actually get a centaur, where they come from. But there's a strong contrast between where most centaurs come from in terms of parentage, where, where Charon does. So Charon is Theos, godlike, because one of his parents is a god. He's the offspring of um, the god Kronos and a nymph, a sort of demigoddess called Philyra. So he has the kind of parentage that's typical of Greek heroes. If you imagine heroes like Achilles and Heracles, they have one mortal parent and one immortal parent. So he, he is what we might classify as heroic, so a sort of demigod. Uh, perhaps we'll come back to the, the vexed issue of his immortality in a moment, because he does actually die, but it's quite difficult for him to do so. The other centaurs are not born from this kind of heroic recipe. In fact, they're produced, as far as we know from our ancient sources, from um, a typical monster-generating circumstance. That's to say their birth is peculiar and unnatural. The circumstances of their creation are odd. They, they are, they're, they're, to cut a very long story short, because it is quite convoluted, they are the products of a weird union between a, a northern Greek mythological character called Ixion, and a cloud in the form of the goddess Hera. So this is typical Greek mythology, right? You don't expect it to make sense in any sort of standard way. Uh, Ixion is a, a criminal, basically. His characteristic in mythology is to behave badly. And one of the bad things that he, he does is, is try to attack and assault the goddess Hera. Obviously, he can't be allowed to get away with that. So Zeus deflects him by creating a cloud in the shape of Hera, which he mistakes for her. And the offspring of Ixion and this Hera-shaped cloud um, eventually, after a couple of sort of chains in the, uh, links in the chain, are, are the centaurs. So they emerge from this really peculiar, unnatural union. And that's so different from the god-nymph combination that gives you Charon. And it does make you wonder whether originally Charon and the other centaurs are sort of independent, separate beings and come to be conflated at a later time. It's impossible to prove, but they're so different. You do wonder whether they start off as completely separate and then at some point are, are kind of brought into analogy. They're, they're described very differently in the Iliad. So um, Charon in the Iliad by Homer is called Dikaiotatos Kentaron, the justest, the most just of the centaurs. Whereas the other centaurs are only called feres, wild beasts. They're not used, the, Homer doesn't use the term kentauroi for, for them. And the fact that there is this linguistic difference does make me, again, wonder whether we do actually have very different origins for Charon and the other centaurs. But that's pure speculation. I don't see how one, one could really prove it either way. Okay, and uh, it, you, we talked about a couple uh, citations in tradition. The Iliad also has come up a couple times. Can you share uh, the role of the centaur in the Iliad? Mm, definitely. Well, again, I know I keep saying this. It depends which one, one ones you mean, because Charon is there in his in his positive role as ever. That's the earliest earliest mention of him. He is um, described as having taught the hero Achilles healing skills. So Achilles is one of many heroes who spend their childhood with Charon and are reared and also taught by him. He's an educator of heroes. He, he lives in a cave on Mount Pelion in Thessaly in northern Greece and he receives 
lots of heroes in their in their childhood or, or their infancy and, and, and brings them up. You might say, why, why does he end up receiving so many heroes? Well, in the case of Achilles, we know that's because Achilles' mother Thetis leaves him when he's young, goes back to the sea, renounces her marriage to the mortal Peleus, basically dumps um, her husband and her child and Charon kind of takes Achilles on at that point. So, so in the Iliad, Charon is the source of Achilles's um, healing abilities, which sort of seem in a way out of keeping with Achilles's main role as um, an amazing fighter. But actually, he's a good healer as well, and that comes from Charon. The other centaurs are mentioned in connection with their famous battle with the Lapiths. The elderly Nestor reminisces, possibly a bit tediously, about the exciting things he experienced in his youth, um, and he talks about the mighty battle between the Lapiths, this northern Greek tribe, and the Oreskoi Feres, the mountain beasts, by which Homer must mean the centaurs, but he doesn't use that term. So there are only these are only fleeting references. Of course, the main drama in the Iliad is taking place in Troy. The centaurs are back home in Greece. But they do pop up in the narrative by way of sort of reminiscence or analogy or backstory really significantly. Chiron, is that uh, the same centaur that Pindar was writing about as well? Yeah, yeah, he's a light motif through through Greek literature. He he retains this amazing sort of symbolic potency through centuries. And also it's worth just mentioning that there's a pretty good I'm not 100% convinced, but there's a pretty good um, rationale for interpreting the left Candice centaur as a representation of Charon in particular. Um, the reason for that is that the, this terracotta centaur has on one of its knees what is obviously a deliberate gouge or mark in the clay. It doesn't look like an accidental, you know, the, 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 the moulding tool of the sculptor slipped. There would have been ample opportunity to correct it. It happened before firing. Why would that make it Charon? Well, in much, much later texts, Charon is said to have um, been wounded by one of um, Heracles' poisoned arrows. And this brings us back, in fact, to the theme of Charon's immortality, because um, this, this story of his wounding, um, he, he, he can sustain an injury, a terribly painful one from this arrow, but because he's immortal, he can't actually die. So Charon's peculiar end is that he does eventually kind of parlay his own mortality. He gets permission, he arranges to die by a rather complicated process, but he only does so when he's in the grip of an agonising injury. So he comes to a rather peculiar end, actually, for such a just and important figure. Um, but anyway, so so um, it's possible that the, the, the left candy centaur of circa 900 BCE is Charon, and that would be really significant because it would be by far our oldest, I mean, by a large margin, representation of a named and specific centaur. Most of the early images of centaurs are just generic, maybe little America, um, little um, metal fi figurines. We don't know which centaur, we don't know if it's just a general one or, or, a, or a named one. But if we think that the left candy centaur is Charon, that's fascinating. What's known about their family life? And the, ty and the types of uh, family units, did, did they operate from a nuclear family? Uh, what's, what's known about uh, how they may have procreated, that whole area? 
that's always the question. There are so many, when you have a, a biformed creature like that, it immediately raises questions like, what do they eat? Do they eat human food or, or do they graze? Do they like grass? Which stomach does the digesting? You know, there are all sorts of really interesting questions. And the ancients asked themselves these questions as well. So there are two things worth mentioning here. One is that Chiron was given a family life. And I think that's a way of emphasizing his civilized character, whereas the, the most of the centaurs are normally trying to steal other people's wives, or, or at any rate, borrow them for a brief time. Um, Chiron has his own. She's fully humanoid. She's a nymph called Cariclo. And he has daughters. Uh, Pindar describes them as Kurai Hagnai, sacred daughters or, or holy, holy daughters, presumably also demigoddesses, nymphs. So he has a really domestic setup in his cave on Mount Pelion, and early, early Attic ceramics um, pottery from about sort of 580, 570 BCE, rather likes depicting Charon, um, for example, attending the wedding of Peleus and Thetis turning up as a wedding guest with his wife, Cariclo, kind of behind him. Um, that's on the famous uh, wine bowl by Sophilos. And so it's obviously sort of piquant and pleasing to ancients to think about this domestic side of the centaur. And this carries on. Uh, another text worth, worth mentioning in this regard is a, a, a work by the extremely funny um, Lucian of Samosata, who's a writer from the second century AD, so we're now whizzing forward a few centuries. And Lucian is a writer of really tongue-in-cheek satirical skits or sketches. One of them is about the painter Zeuxis, and in this work, this is a great classical painter, and in the work, there are a group of people are marvelling at a painting that Zeuxis has done recently, and the artist is there as well as a character in the, in the little mini-drama. And the painting is of a centaur family. So we've got daddy centaur, mummy centaur, and two babies. Um, and the, one of the babies is suckling from the mare udder of the female centaur. And the other one is drinking from her, her human breast at the front end. So it's as if it's covering all the possibilities in terms of how a baby centaur actually obtains nourishment. And, and throughout, Lucian is really playing with, with the peculiarity of this scene. For example, he emphasizes that the female centaur is really beautiful. She's really attractive. And the viewer is rather sort of, it's a bit troubling to be told that she's got this kind of female allure because of course only part of her is human but we're told that the human part is like the most beautiful woman and the horse part is like the nicest possible horse an elegant filly from Thessaly where the best horses came from so we have this combination of equine and human beauty it's really really interesting um the the male centaur is described as kind of fierce and scary but also rather rather touching in the way that he tries to shelter and protect his young in the way that any fierce animal will do. So this is Lucian through the through imagining the, 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 the painter's Euxis in his work, really trying to explore the charm and the strangeness of this scene. And this is why centaurs are so appealing. I think they are on the one hand somehow really appealing. We want to look at them, we find them curious and interesting, but also you know, strangely beautiful, and yet at the same time, like all hybrids, they are disturbing, they are unnatural, they can't exist in nature, and so on. Chiron, so Chiron was married to a mortal nymph. Would you? What would you say about that? Yes, I mean, it's 
Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I meant immortal. My yeah, I, I meant immortal. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's sad how little we actually know about Caricla. I mean, she turns up on, as I say, on the Sophilos, Dinos, this fabulous piece of Attic black figure painted pottery from about 580. You, it's in the British Museum. You can look at it. You can look at it on the British Museum website. And, and she's there labelled, the, the artist Sophilos has painstakingly labelled every single character in what is a very elaborate scene, which is guests arriving at the wedding festivities of Peleus and Thetis, the parents of Achilles. Uh, and she's in the vicinity of Charon, who's turning up with wedding presents, a great branch beslung with dead animals, that he's, um, which is a good thing in antiquity. That's his wedding gift. Um, so we get, we, we know that the ancients knew her name, told her story, but we have very little surviving literature about her. And if anyone wanted to write an interesting novel about this, I think she would be a character worth picking up on because she's one of the kind of voiceless females of ancient myth, really. And as far as I know, we don't we don't know anything else about her. Do you infer then, um, is it believed she was a nymph? Is that, is there evidence yes. for that? I think so. I think that's fairly well established. I mean, she's part of the kind of natural landscape of Mount Pelion and the area around it, Magnesia. Um, there are several Magnesias in the ancient world, but this one is the sort of eastern seaboard of Thessaly going down from Mount Ossa in the north to Pelion in the south. And this is an area associated with kind of rustic mountain creatures of various sorts. The centaurs live there, Charon lives there, but also we have various nymphs who are associated with the kind of natural um, profusion and fertility of the region. So I think that's the best way of understanding her. Nymphs really challenge us because they're so various and so many. You know, there is a, the, the, the ancient countryside was sort of dotted with these these demi divinities whose whose biographies are really lost to us now because they're not in the sort of central canon of the Greek pantheon. They're not the mighty twelve, but they would have been really, presumably, really important to the people of that local area. I mean, presumably, stories of this Caraco would have circulated in oral form, even though we don't have surviving texts. So I'm not suggesting she was unimportant at the time, but it's these figures that don't really, they don't make the cut when it comes to the sort of mainstream narratives of ancient literature that we still read today. So for all tents and purposes, because I think you used the term humanoid, so for all tents and purposes, did she have the form of a human? And then what's known about um, the, the form of their, of their children, what they look like? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, as far as we know, Cariclo and her daughters, hers and Charon's daughters, are all, all completely, I mean, I say humanoid rather than human, because, of course, a nymph isn't, isn't strictly a human. Sure. But yes, there doesn't seem to be any passing on. I mean, this is where um, ancient hybrids don't really work in terms of kind of modern genetics, or only if hybridism occupies a recessive gene. I mean, you don't tend to pass it on, I think. Um well, I suppose centaurs beget other centaurs, but Charon is rather peculiar in that he marries a human and then produces humans. Um, and how you how you get a hybrid in the first place, as we've mentioned as well, is also not quite what you... You'd expect that a, a hybrid would always be produced when a human and an animal mate, and that's, that's not the case. Um, as we've already mentioned, the recipe for producing centaurs is, is rather different. So you mentioned um, uh, 
different places earlier that they resided. One one was the Arabian uh, Peninsula, it appears, in one of the traditions. So when it comes to Greece, how would you summarize, based on tradition, uh, where where they lived, if you were to summarize kind of the spots, the main spots that show up in tradition? They are really localized, actually. There seem to be two traditions, the Peloponnesian one and the Thessalian one. Um, the Peloponnesian one is centered around Mount Philoe, which is in Elis, and is occupied by a centaur called Pholos. Obviously, he's named after the mountain, or the mountain is named after him. And he is really like a doublet of Chiron, because he is also a good centaur, a just and restrained centaur. And they're so similar that one, I think, must have been modelled on the other. I think Chiron is the older one because he does turn up significantly earlier in our surviving sources. And all the all the myths about his him in Thessaly, I mean, they seem to go back, if, if the great scholar Martin West is to be believed, we can push that cluster of stories in which he's implicated back to the late Bronze Age, so really early stuff. And I think we don't have comparable dating rationale for Pholos. So I would see the Peloponnesian version of Chiron, Pholos, as being the later and modelled on Chiron, maybe a competitive attempt where we've got a good centaur too. Um, in, in Thessaly, which, um, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, um, we, we do have a sort of deeply embedded central tradition in a really interesting way, which um, not only does it have early origins, but it pops up again in some really intriguing ways. So Chiron um, is sort of resurrected as a figure of local civic importance in the Hellenistic period in the third century BC, where we have, I mean, we can't tell whether this really is an innovation or whether it's just we have evidence of it for the first time, but we suddenly hear about um, two really interesting social and religious institutions in and around the Pelion area in Thessaly. And one is that we have a family of doctors, of healers, living in the nearby polis of Demetrias, who claim descent from Chiron, or they claim to have been descended from someone taught by Chiron. So he becomes a kind of ancestor figure for a local guild of healers who practice their medicine free. The important they place the emphasis on not taking money for it. It's a kind of there's a lot of honor involved. And their healing uses the medicinal herbs of Mount Pelion, which by then have started to be marketed as a sort of local speciality, a really important local product. So that's one thing. The second thing is that we have a an annual pilgrimage, as you might say, in which people from Demetrius, in particular, the, they're described as being kind of men in the prime of life, go make the laborious journey up this steep mountain, wearing, we're told um, by the author who gives us his information, Heraclides Criticos, wearing kind of rough, fresh fleeces or sheepskins. Now, these are the, the author Heraclides tells us that they wear these because the mountain is cold and they need the warmth of the fleeces. But in fact, we can see um, that there is a, a symbolic meaning to this costume because it's 
evocative of the wild, the primitive, the old-fashioned. So by going up the mountain to visit Cairon, you're entering a kind of time before, a sort of early, early time. And the, actually, the person who's written authoritatively on this is, is somebody you've interviewed for this podcast before, Professor Richard Buxton. Mm. So uh, if you have a look at his book, Imaginary Greece, you'll find some discussion of this. But anyway, um, in the third century BC, it's obviously the case that Cairon is a really substantial figure in the in the religious life of this particular community, in particular this city, Demetrias, but the whole the whole area as well. And and um, I think the the interesting thing about most hybrids, certainly centaurs, is that they never lose their their importance and their power. They might have a different meaning in different contexts, but they seem to be sort of perennial as figures of particularly kind of local self-advertisement and local identity. Because they're so grounded in specific places and specific landscapes, they can become the sort of selling point of a community, its speciality and the way it markets itself to the world beyond. That's certainly what happens with Cairon in the Hellenistic period. So a closing question, Emma, if uh, someone's reflecting on centaurs in Greek mythology, what do you think they should be, um, how should they consider centaurs in Greek mythology, if you were to summarize? Well, I think actually, um, one thing I would urge people to do is think about how the ancient Greeks and Romans, but I'm particularly thinking of the Greeks here, thought about horses. Because one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that these creatures are Um, most of their anatomy is actually equine and I think that you can get at the character of a centaur by thinking thinking via perceptions of horses in ancient Greece so on the one hand horses can be weirdly ferocious in Greek myth we have myths in which horses are man-eaters they're eaters of human flesh and the mares of Diomedes, for example. So the Greeks were obviously aware of the kind of savage potential of horses, which is odd because they're vegetarian. So the kind of wildness of centaurs can be brought in there. At the same time, horses were very much admired. They were regarded as kind of elite animals, prized by the aristocracy associated with chariot racing, for example, and with the cavalry. Uh, They were extremely expensive. So perhaps the kind of the nobility of some centaurs could be connected with that as well. So a single species of animal doesn't have one meaning in the ancient imagination. It has several facets, and likewise centaurs. Um, and, and just the second point I'd say is we always remember the dichotomy between good and bad centaurs, that you, you seem to need to have both. They're rarely separate. The badly behaved ones and the idealised Cairon seem to be sort of considered as two sides of the same coin. They're always there in the same stories, interacting. Eventually, of course, Cairon dies because the arrow which Heracles shoots at the badly behaved centaurs misses them and hits him instead. So his proximity to the other centaurs proves fatal to him in the long run. Mm. So you're working on uh, history in Thessaly now. Do you want to share, take a moment and share with everybody what you're working on? Thanks. Yes, uh, certainly. I'm, I'm just trying to trying to pull together a book that I've been working on for uh, on and off, actually, um, about a decade now. And what I'm interested in is how how the Thessalians presented themselves as as a well, to use the Greek word, an ethnos, an ethnic group or a, a, a race. This is not um, a matter of genetic reality, of course, but sort of self presentation. That there's a uh, there are various moments through 
the historical historical period I'm looking at, when it becomes very important for the Thessalians to emphasize collective identity. And how you do that in antiquity is always interesting. Religion and myth are the key channels by which communities achieved a sense of cohesion and then presented that to the outside world. Um, and indeed, you won't be surprised to know that centaurs pop up as part of that, because we might think, we might assume that the particularly with the badly behaved ones, we might assume that that's other Greeks trying to imagine what life is like in the wild north, up in Thessaly, oh, they're all savage up there, like those centaurs. But actually, the Thessalians themselves seem to have cultivated centaur stories and really taken them seriously as a matter of local pride and owned them. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And um, I hope at some stage, too, it's one of these very big sprawling topics, but I'm gradually pulling all the threads together and hope to stitch it all together and get it out into the world at some stage in the not too distant future. Is there, uh, and you can you can give a range for a date range, but is there is there a date in your mind that you're hoping to have the book complete by? Well, the idea, I mean, as you can imagine, Andrew, I mean, COVID has, has um, not been... Uh, optimum for this because of course I was planning a final trip around Greece to take some photographs of key sites and some of the objects in museums and muse museum store areas um, and obviously that's delayed but my hope is to have the the typescript um, sent off to the publisher at the end of um, this summer vacation. And the reason why that's important is, of course, in the autumn, we have a wonderful new influx of students. We start our academic year in late September. And of course, once teaching starts, you suddenly discover that there aren't enough hours in the day to keep your book project moving forward. So yes, done and dusted by the end of summer is the hope. And then, of course, the whole publishing process takes a very long time. It's coming out with Liverpool University Press. So Okay. I hope uh, we can chat on a historical topic then on Thessaly sometime. I'd be delighted. Thanks for coming on the show, Emma. This was a lot of fun. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Aston wrote, Mix Anthropoi, Animal-Human Hybrid Deities in Greek Religion. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Emma and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.